Well, good morning. It's really awesome to be here. Um, awesome to hear this guy. He's uh, pretty awesome. Uh, but praise God, uh, God is using him as, worship, as the worship pastor. His father actually married uh, my wife and I 19 years ago. And so uh, I was <laughs> Dylan was hardly born then. <laughs> but uh, it's awesome to be here today and, and um, get to share with you guys. As Dylan said, we've been here for about 10 months. And um, this is our, one of our last weekends in um, America. Uh, next weekend we'll be at our home church in the Smoky Point Community Church. We'll be, they'll be sending us off, but it's um, sweet to be here um, with you guys. Uh, we have a picture of our family. We were here a couple months ago and shared in the Sunday school, and but I don't expect everyone to remember who we are, but my wife and I, uh, Dawn, like I said, have been married uh, for 19 years. Um, we got married when we were 12, so it's worked out really good. His arranged marriages um, still work. Uh, and then our oldest is Austin. He's fif just turned 15, and he is at a youth camp with our church um, this weekend, so he can't be here today. Uh, but then we have Caleb, who's uh, 13, and then Jacob on the other side is 12, and Micah is 10. And um, it's crazy uh, to be called a, a missionary and to be introduced as that. Um, because as I shared a few months ago in the Sunday school, that was never something that was on our radar. We never grew up thinking about missions. We never said, oh, someday uh, we'll be in Africa and everything's going to be better. It was, we never left the country until we went to Africa. And um, I say that because, I mean, that's a lot of us, I think. Um, but in, in my family, my great-grandparents were actually some of the first missionaries to China uh, in the early 1900s. And a lot of their children, uh, my uncles, and uh, became missionaries and, and pastors of churches. And, and even still, with that kind of family heritage, it was never something where I was like, one day I'll be like them. It was always like, they're crazy. They're obviously the super elite uh, Christians, and, and I'm down here, and God uses the varsity team. He doesn't use um, people like me. And um, so missions was never on our radar. It was never something until maybe about 10, eight years ago that we really felt God just revealing, uh, to, revealing to us what he was having for us to do. And it wasn't uh, some vision. It wasn't him speaking from a mountaintop. It wasn't some dramatic calling. It was just as we were reading God's word together, as we were studying, as we were putting ourselves in the path of God, <clears throat> words that we had always read began to just speak to us. And when, when Jesus says in Matthew 28, which a lot of us can recite pr better than me, you know, he says to go and make disciples. I think it's even on the program if you haven't heard of that one before, but go and make disciples. I'd read that a hundred times and, and, and it was always just something in the past tense. And one day as I was reading it, it wasn't past tense anymore. It was God saying through his Holy Spirit, go and make disciples. And eventually that same, that same pattern um, God used um, to reveal his will also to my wife. And about the same time, he uh, called us into this strange world of uh, what we call missions. And um, we never had a, a Bible degree, but we had gotten some necessary Bible training uh, for our organization. And in uh, 2012, we went to France uh, to learn French because the, the place that we were going to be working at um, required that. Um, this place uh, is considered one of the least evangelized um, countries in Africa, 
Um, it's Chad. It's right there in the middle. It's, it's red, I think, because it's um, equivalent to the temperature of the sun. And um, <coughs> it's considered the least evangelized country in Africa. Um, there, I think we have the next slide. I kind of changed up the order. Okay, good. Uh, this is written really small, so you can't uh, actually read it, so you'll have to trust me. Um, but uh, this is from the Joshua Project, and if you're into that kind of stuff, that's a great website to go to. But this is kind of a spiritual picture of what Chad is like. Um, there are 140 uh, people groups, and a people group is hard for us to relate to because we're American, and for the most part, we can tend to say, we're all one people. And, and even our Chadian friends will say, teacher, uh, what, what people are you? And I'll say, uh... I'm American, I'm not like, but for them and for most of the world, there are these people groups and there can be just a similar culture, similar language, similar beliefs. It can have some, some uh, similarities there and, and it can be just a couple thousand people. It can be very large, hundreds of thousands of people. One of these um, people, oh, you can go back, sorry. Uh, one of these uh, people groups out of the 140 um, well, let's go to this. The unreached people groups. So there's 140 uh, people groups, and then there's 73 that are considered unreached. That means that they have no church building they could stumble into. They have no Christian literature. They have no way of hearing what God has done through Jesus. And they have no access to what we call the gospel. And so one of these uh, unreached people groups, um, my best friend, um, Abakar, is a part of that group. And that group has 700,000 people in it. And that's roughly the size of about Seattle. And so if you can imagine one, peop one of those 73 people groups is Seattle. And Abakar is one of four known believers out of that 700,000 people. So if you can imagine just this many believers in Seattle um, and 700,000 people that have zero access. There is not an uh, opportunity for them to hear what we have gotten to hear unless somebody goes to them. And then we also see that there's 26% uh, of the country is considered Christian, a professing Christian. And, and if you're good with colors on the, on, the, on the side there, we have green dots that represent considered re reached people and red dots considered unreached people. And what had happened in the early days as missionaries, as they came up into Chad from the south, they found that the climate was tolerable, the people were accepting, and they were converting pretty, pretty rapidly. And uh, so a lot of those people groups had access to the gospel. They've heard uh, who Jesus is and what God has done through him. But then as they got up to the north, about where the capital city is, they started to encounter resistance from this religion called Islam. And the missionaries just honestly said, these people are too resistant. They're too hard. They, they will not accept the gospel. And so we will not go any further. They just kind of stopped at that point. And so that's what's left. Most all of the unreached people groups in Chad are in the northern part. Some are in the capital city, but a lot of them, their individual villages are in the Sahara Desert. Very hard to get to, very hot, very um, difficult to learn their individual languages. Um, a lot of these, there's 140 people groups and there's about that many different languages, but the predominant language is French, and uh, the trade language, so to speak, is Arabic. And so those are kind of the ones that most everybody speaks. But, um, and then, again, you can't really see these numbers, but the unreached population. So we talked about people groups, unreached people groups, there's 73 groups, but the population, breaking it down to each individual person, is about 7.5 million people. 7.5 million people have, have zero access to this good news that we get to hear about. 
each weekend. And so then, so that's kind of spiritual con uh, spiritual idea of Chad. And so then the next slide, yes, is a report that they did on the quality of living in Chad or in the world for what we call expats, people who, like us, move to another country. What is it like? What's the quality of living? And they did this right after, I guess there was some kind of election that happened recently and people were threatening to leave the country. And uh, so they did this to kind of say, this is where you want to go. And if you uh, like German food, you're in luck because like the top three out of 10 is our cities in Germany for the best quality of living. Uh, most of them are in Europe. So if you want to live well as an expat, as a foreigner, go to Europe. However, uh, on the bottom 10, out of 230 cities in the world, the very worst quality of living for you, for me, is Baghdad, Iraq. You've heard of Baghdad, Iraq. They're not such a good place to go vacation. Five up from Baghdad is Jamena Chad. That's where we live. Um, just a little bit nicer quality of living. And then Jemena is Damascus, Syria, which, you know, has, they're in the news a little bit as well. A little bit worse is Khartoum that has their own um, civil war. You have Haiti on there, Yemen, Central African Republic. So Jemena, for when you come to visit us, has the, one of the lowest quality of living. So there's not anything to do. There's not very much development. And uh, so that's what you have to look forward to in that. And then the very next one, so it's the lowest quality of living. And the next slide, I hope, talks about the, yes, cost of living. The same company did a, uh, some research on the cost of living for these places and broke them down and ranked them. So, Jimena, you get the lowest quality of living and the ninth most expensive city in the world for expats to live in. Jimena uh, is there in the middle of, of uh, Africa. So you get um, corruption, you get dirt roads, you get poor, n almost no infrastructure, and <laughs> some of the most expensive um, prices in the world. Add to that the climate. Uh, it's in incredibly hot. Um, in the hot season, it can be 120 degrees in the shade. Uh, there's little, rarely, electricity and um, not, not always running water. And so I paint this glorious picture for you so that you can pack your bags and come and join us. <coughs> but also to say that because of these things, there are not that many people um, that just jump up and say, ooh, send me. I want to go to that place. That sounds like a good place to go and serve God. And so if we were to have a conference in Chad with all of the workers that work in this country to reach the 73 unreached people groups, you could maybe fit all of the workers in this section here with their kids, maybe some of this because, you know, missionaries and their kids. But it's, <coughs> so there's not that many people there. And as we were looking at where God might have us serve, that was one of the things we were thinking about. We want to go somewhere where there aren't that many people working, where there's a really big need, where there's a lot of um, people that have yet to hear. And um, so we landed on this place that isn't necessarily paradise um, to s by any means. Um, I shared in the Sunday school um, time as well that uh, a couple months ago that when we first got there, my wife got incredibly sick. She got malaria, and the treatment that she was given to treat that um, caused uh, a lot of um, adverse side effects um, regarding anxiety and panic attacks and even depression. And, and that took months and months and months for that those, um, the medicine to be worn off of her system that she was wrongly given. 
And then even to this day, there are still some lingering side effects from that experience. And so that happened the month, that we, the month after we arrived there. And um, there was a very rocky start, a very difficult entry into this country that we already knew was going to be difficult. Um, but God saw us through it, and as the dust settled, so to speak, um, he opened a door for a ministry that um, is just custom fit uh, for our family. Um, I also have a little video, I think, Yes, I do, As, uh, of just driving around the city, just random um, cuts here and there. It's not going to be beautiful. It's nothing Steven Spielberg did, but it is uh, illegal to take pictures and video uh, in Jemena. And so some of these I've had my friend, um, my Chadian friend, go around and I say, hey, will you take pictures I can show my friends when I go back? Uh, and he says, yeah. So they drove around, and, and some of them are just uh, of, of, of me teaching. Uh, the lighting's not so great, but you, there's a really great beard on that guy, and it's just too bad that it was like down to here. My wife loves it, and she wishes I would grow it back, but that's not entirely true. <clears throat> and so this is at one of our graduations. Um, we, we, um, I'll talk more about exactly what we do here in just a minute, but this is just kind of a short, quick um, picture of, uh, of what some of the th- scenes are from, from Jemena. Um, This is uh, out in the village. This is me thinking deeply about the, the worries of the world. Uh, this is my friend um, that I went to his village and visited his family. Um, and you can kind of see that it's very uh, underdeveloped. Maybe this will loop for just a little bit while I talk about what we get to do. Yes, it will. And so um, God has opened up a way for us to work with him in reaching these unreached people groups. We, we work in the capital city, and... Um, all of these people are converged into this capital city of about a million people, and you can find every single unreached people group in this capital city. Uh, and so God has, has paved a way um, for us to teach at a center, a center that's called uh, o- Oasis. And um, this center has been around for about 20 years. Uh, it has offered English classes um, for students. And so students have been coming for years and years. It's very highly respected. And... Um, they, they come from villages, they come from the city, people send their children even from other countries. We've had students from uh, Libya and from Sudan and, and even um, Egypt, we've had students from there as well. And they come uh, to learn English. And so as great as that is to have this access to these unreached people groups, to be able to have a relationship with them, it gets even better uh, because we get to te- use the Bible as our curriculum to teach them English. And so every day we kind of laugh to ourselves, (laughs) seriously, we get to do this, we get get to teach the gospel to people who have never heard it before, Um, and uh, that's exactly uh, what we get to do. Um, This has been going on at the center, like I said, for about 20 years, and and we were asked to to take the head of it um, once we got there, just kind of a, just so happened that the people who were running it had to go home, and they needed somebody to take over, and and so... um, they asked us to do it, and we said, absolutely, um, we would love to do that. So uh, prior to entering our classes, the students, we do an interview with them. Yes, there you go, good job. Don't even get car sick. Um, the students have to uh, pass a, a level of uh, an, an interview. They first have to pass three beginner levels of English. That's all taught by Chadians. And actually, the guy standing to my, to my side there, he is, is one of our teachers, uh, Yusuf. He is not a believer, um, but he teaches English, um, just the grammatical, all the nuts and bolts of the English language. 
once they pass his three levels, then we do an interview to, to enter into our classes. And part of that interview, we ask a lot of questions just to get a feel for how they can understand us and how uh, well we can understand them. Um, but also, we, we are very upfront and we, we ask them right away. So in, in our classes, we use the Torah and the Injil, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, to, to study English. Are you okay with that? And every single student says, absolutely, teacher. These are holy books and, and it's good. I want to study what the Bible says. And uh, so, yes, I, 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 want to, I want to take the class. And so we're not pulling in kind of a bait and switch. Uh, we're just uh, very openly saying, this is what we use to, to learn English. Uh, do you want to, to do that as well? And so um, other questions that we ask are just what kind of, how many languages they speak, because on average people in Chad will speak at least five languages. Um, and that, so that we do that um, just also as part of the interview, but just helps me to pinpoint more exactly what type of people group they might be from. When their, their mother language is this, then I know they belong to this unreached people group. And it just helps us to be able to know a little bit more about our students and where they're coming from. So that interview process, I'll interview maybe about 70 um, students, and I'll only accept about 20 uh, that are the most ready, that can understand me, and that, that we can have a, a conversation easily enough. And it might seem harsh. We have all these you know, 70 students say, teach me the Bible. And we say, no, we're only going to take you guys. Um, but we do that because those 20 are going to get the most out of the class. They're going to understand the most. They're going to be able to study the most on their own. And it will be more effective for them to take the class than people that are just sitting there saying, I don't understand anything this guy's saying. And so um, as we start to s teach these stories to these 20 students, we have 26 stories from the Old Testament that we start with. And it is amazing what happens to you as a person to teach these stories to people that have never heard it before. Because uh, a lot of us, if you've spent any time in, in the church or, or around Christian people, you, you get exposed to these stories and it just seems so normal. This, the, whole, the whole book, the whole Bible just seems like, oh yeah, I've heard that story before. Yeah, yeah, that's right. David killed a giant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All these things happened. Uh, oh yeah, there's these prophets. Oh yeah, there's this... Oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that. And, and, I, and it just becomes so normal. Um, but as you're teaching the story to people that have never heard it before, you start to hear it almost as the first time. And, and it opens your eyes. Something happens. You start to see, wow, this is really crazy. This whole book is hard to believe. <laughs> the stories are more than I can imagine. The, the people have lives that are, are so complicated and, 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 and difficult. I just, you, you see things from a different light. And so um, we start with the creation story. And, and in their book, they don't really, the, the Quran, they don't have a story like we have about creation. And so they're very interested about that. Um, but then, you know, there, there are some stories in the, in the early goings that they can relate to, but not very many. Um, they have a similar, some of the similarities. Um, but there's also some differences, some big differences and some small differences. Some of the small differences are like they have the story of Noah and the flood, um, but uh, in their book, Noah's wife did not want to get on the ark, and so Noah had to physically pick her up, carry her, set her in the ark, lock the doors, and um, that just seems like a strange, why does that detail have to be in there? Another, uh, what I think is more strange is in their book, uh, supposedly Solomon was so wise that he could actually speak to animals, and animals could speak to him. And uh, again, it just seems kind of strange, and like, why does that detail have to be in there? It doesn't really do anything to help the story. But then there's other differences that are bigger, that you can't just say, okay, we have whatever, 
like the story of Abraham, God telling him to sacrifice his son Isaac in our story. In, in their book, God tells him to sacrifice his son Ishmael. And that's a big problem because if you take Isaac out of the story, God has promised specifically through Isaac that his descendants will come, that, that God will bless his people through Isaac's descendants. And so it's a very, uh, there's this big switcheroo that happens there to take Isaac out and put Ishmael in because that blessing was promised to Isaac. And then you have the story of Moses uh, in, in, our, in the Old Testament. We see Moses um, going to, he sees the Israelites being beaten. He looks around, he intentionally commits murder, buries uh, the Egyptian soldier, and um, he has to run for his life because he is a murderer. In their story, it's very different. Moses was trying to protect the Israelite. He, he pushes the guy backwards, he stumbles, hits his head, and he dies. It was very accidental. And um, that speaks a lot to their view of prophets in their book, Prophets Do Not Sin. And so you can't say that Moses is a murderer because a prophet wouldn't sin. A prophet is, is perfect and blessed by God. But also, it just takes a ver very light approach to sin. And you see that through um, their book, that sin is not that big of a deal, that God kind of just says, yeah, I know you, you, you didn't quite measure up. You're not perfect, but, you know, whatever. It's okay. Uh, he doesn't actually forgive sin, but he more forgets sin. And there are a lot of things that I've learned about Islam that as foreigners, we can say, whoa, those guys are weird. But there's a lot about their view of God and how they interact with him that I've struggled with as well. I, I have spent many years thinking, well, you know, God hasn't just, you know, lit me on fire, so it must not, not, must not be that big of a deal. And, and, and sin, in, in my own mind, can become pretty light. Okay, well, you know, God must not care that much. And um, you don't read about this kind of instant consequences that we read about in the Old Testament. And so that's kind of the view that um, Muslims have of, of God, is that there is this sin problem, but it's not that big of a deal. Don't stress out about it too much. And as we work through the stories, the, the students pick up on these differences. We, we get to Moses, and they'll say, whoa, whoa, teacher, okay. In, in our book, uh, Moses, doesn't mur he, Moses isn't a murderer. Moses is just defending himself. He's being brave. And I say, okay. And he says, but in this story, teacher, it, it looks like Moses is a murderer. And I'll say, yeah. And I just, they'll say, but teacher, those, that's very different. And I'll say, yeah, it is. And I don't, you know, break into apologetics or just, you know, try to prove why this story is right and that story is wrong. Just, yeah, it is. It is different. There's a difference there. And it's important for them to see that there is a difference. If we're going to say that the first five books of the Old Testament are holy books, which is what the Muslims believe, and the first four books and the Gospels are holy books, and there's differences, then we need to be aware of that. And so we continue uh, through our stories, and, and pretty soon they don't have very much to relate to. They're, they don't have these types of stories that we have after Moses um, leaves. They don't have the plagues. Um, they don't have the, the Ten Commandments. Um, this idea that there are things that you must do so that you can enter God's kingdom. They have rules in their religion, but nothing is clear and is spelled out as the Ten Commandments. And so in our class, I do this exercise with them where I'll have them from memory tell me uh, the Ten Commandments and I'll write them on the board and um, I'll, I'll tell them, I'll say, okay, I'm not gonna have you take God's test, but, but I'll take God's test. And, and I'll ask them, so what do I have to score to enter God's kingdom? And uh, they'll say, teacher, you have to score 10 out of 10. 
I said, okay, but what if I get nine out of 10? Is that good enough? And I said, no, no, teacher, you have to score 10 out of 10. And I said, okay. So I look at the test and I said, okay, well, I have not honored God's name every single day of my life. So I, I crossed that one. I have not honored my parents every single day of my life. I have, um, I have lied. I, I have stolen. Uh, and so I'm working down the list and crossing them off. And pretty soon we get down to just three out of 10. And the students are like, oh my goodness, teacher, this is terrible. They're freaking out. They're like, our own teacher can't get into the, can't get into the kingdom. He can't get into paradise. And the three left are always um, do not commit adultery, um, do not murder, and have no idols. And, and so I tell them, yes, this is really bad. I've scored three out of 10. But it gets worse because um, Jesus taught about adultery, that if you just think about a woman, and, and that's a real big problem for them. They, they don't like hearing that one. And, and, and so I, I, I cross that one off. And, and, and Jesus taught about murder, that if you just hate, if you think evil about someone else, that is the same as, as murder. And so I cross that one out. And an and idol isn't just something that you, you, a statue that you bow down to, but it's anything that you put between you and God. And so I cross that one out and I write zero out of 10, and by this time they're losing their minds and they're just freaking out. There's teacher, this is so bad. And eventually somebody will always ask, teacher, what do we do? If this is how it is, what do we do? I'll even have a, teacher, a student say, teacher, I can score seven out of 10. And I'll say, okay, well, is seven out of 10 good enough? And they'll say no, which I know he's lying, which is you know, a whole nother problem. <laughs> <clears throat> And so they say, what do we do? We can't, we're not good enough. And again, I want to go back to the fact we can look at Muslims and say, those weirdos. I can think in my own heart how much, how much time I've spent thinking, I'm good enough. I am. I go to church. I read the Bible. I pray. I give. I serve. Sure, yeah, I'm not perfect, but, you know, maybe I've done enough good. And that's their view of God. This idea, the following story, we talk about atonement. This, they have another word they have no concept for. This idea that God requires a payment for sin, and that payment has to be in blood. There has to be a sacrifice. That blood is what God has given to remove sin. They don't have any connection to that. That doesn't make any sense to them, and, and, and we try as best we can to understand that this is God's rules. God has said you must score out of t 10 out of 10. If you don't, then there has to be a payment. You have to make a payment. It's not just God says, well, you did this many good things, you did this many bad things, eh, okay, you're good enough, you can get in. God doesn't care about good enough. God does not have good enough in his vocabulary. He has perfect, and that is his only word for an entrance of anyone into his kingdom. And that's what they're wrestling with, and that's what I have wrestled with, and I think, if we're honest, we've wrestled with that too. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? <clears throat> so we end our Old Testament classes on a, a bit of a cliffhanger. There's these prophets that are talking about these, this one that's supposed to come, this servant that God is sending that will be perfect, that he will die for his people. He will be punished, that he, he will bleed. His blood will remove the sins of his people. But it's just left on a cliffhanger. And, and some of the students will even say, teacher, are they talking about Jesus here? And I'll say, I don't know, we'll have to find out. We have, you know, the next class I think will tell us. And we have a whole lot of exams and, and written tests that they have to pass in order to move from the Old Testament class to the New Testament class. 
And as um, we enter the New Testament class, um, we'll have this story of this amazing birth that's being talked about by these angels. And the angels call this son that's going to be born the Son of God. And this title, the Son of God, that we've heard uh, many, many times is such a red flag to Muslims that if God would have chosen any other term to call Jesus, I think our job would have been so much easier, but that's God's department, not ours. Because to them, in their book it's written that Jesus was not the Son of God. He never said he was the Son of God. And anyone who believes that he is the Son of God is worshiping more than one God. And that's, that's a big deal. And of course, the first story in our New Testament class has this word, the Son of God. And so we have to deal with it. Um, we have to talk about it because otherwise it's just this big Jesus-sized elephant in the room. And we, I don't say, well, this is what I believe or this is how I understand the Son of God because I don't really care if they believe what I believe. I want them to understand what the story says and to have God, his word speak to them itself. But it is hard to understand. It's a title that we've all heard many times, and we just say, okay, yeah, he's the son of God. But what does that mean? That is such a strange title, the son of God. That's not like you can put a bow on that one and say, okay, well, it means this. But I do know what the Muslims know, what they think. They've been told that Christians believe that Jesus is the son of God because God slept with Mary, and that's how he is the son of God. And so I address that. I say, whoa, 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 that... That is blasphemy. That is disgusting. That, was, that is not what this says. But I'm honest with them. I said, it is hard to understand. We look at the story. I say, who, who calls him the son of God? I say, well, the angel. Who told the angel to say that? Well, God said that. Okay, well, if it's hard for us to understand, this is just the first story. Maybe it will get more clear as we go along. And so they kind of agree. Okay, well, We'll, we'll keep going. And so, but even in our first few stories, Jesus doesn't even speak, but all these other people are talking about Jesus. They're calling him things like the Son of God. They're calling him the Anointed One is how we, we translate the Messiah. He's the special one, this one that was supposed to come. They call him Savior. They call him Emmanuel, which is God is with us. Again, we, we celebrated Christmas not too long ago, a title that we, we just hear a lot, God with us. But you think about what, how separated the people in the Old Testament were from God and how separated they are from God. And now we have one called God with us. And then John the Baptist comes along and he says, there is the one God has sent to take away the sin of the world. There is the lamb God has sent to take away the sin of the world. And this title, Lamb of God, is very hard to understand and as soon as I had said, as soon as we had read this story, one of my students raised his hand. He was actually a Quranic teacher. And he raised his hand and he said, Teacher, John just called Jesus the Lamb God has sent to take away the sin of the world. Are they going to sacrifice Jesus like they did in the Old Testament when the priest had to make a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and the blood was put on the altar and that's what removed the sin from the people? Is that how Jesus is going to remove the sin of his people? Are they going to sacrifice him, teacher? And I said, I don't know, we'll have to find out. I mean, we just got to that part in the story. I mean, he's still alive at this point. But if we didn't start with that Old Testament class and work, do all that hard work laying in that foundation of this system that God has made, that there is a separation between God and us, the way you can bridge that gap is there has to be a payment. And this payment has to come in the Old Testament, in blood. In the New Testament, we're seeing something different.
And it's the same for us. A lot of these titles, Lamb of God, we don't make that instant connection to the Day of Atonement on the, on, in the Old Testament. But that is a huge connection to make. That there isn't anything that we can do to bridge the gap. That there has to be the sacrifice. Our sin is put on this lamb. Our sin is put on Jesus. And he is the one that removes our sin. We, there's no way that we can fix that. And we stress in our class, in this New Testament class especially, three questions that we try to answer out of every single story. Uh, and we do this, A, so they can pass the test and get a certificate. We want them to understand comprehension and ask good questions, but also so that they can also have some, some questions they can take with them when they leave our classes. And these three questions are, what does this story teach us about God? What does this teach us about ourselves? And what should we do or obey? And these are, these are questions that we put on our students, and, and it's, they're questions that are really hard to find answers for. When you're reading a story, it's not like, oh, it's, it's that word right there, that's the answer. You have to understand the whole context of the story and, and how it fits into the greater story to be able to find the answer to these questions. And the students really struggle at first finding the answers, but towards, as we go along in the class, um, they start to really find deep answers to these questions. And, and so I put it out to you, if, if you don't already have a, a methodical way of studying God's word, if you're kind of a open it up and, and read whatever you find kind of a person, um, these three questions can be even useful for us. What does this story teach me about God? Whatever I'm reading, paragraph, sentence, chapter, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about ourselves, about the human condition, and what should I do or obey? These are all questions that we can even put into practice. And, and our students do. They, they go home and they put these questions into practice and they have discussions outside of class. They even teach these stories to their family members, their, their cousins and their nephews that they live with. They, they tell us they sit up at night and they teach them what they've learned in our classroom. They're not teaching them in English. They're teaching them in their, uh, in their mother tongue. They're from their unreached people group. So God's word is being shared in a language no missionary has learned into the household by a net by a, a person from the unreached people group. God's word is going out without us. And yes, praise God for that. And then we read these stories, and again, I've said it before, but these stories become amazing. Something happens when you read them for the first time that you miss out reading them over and over again, and they seem so normal. We have stories as Jesus comes in and he starts talking in our stories where the first story when Jesus talks is these, these four friends drag their paralyzed friend and drop him in front of Jesus when Jesus is in a room full of people. And if that isn't crazy enough, Jesus looks at the faith of the friends and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. The man doesn't say, please forgive my sins. The man doesn't say anything. But Jesus looks at the faith of the friends and says, your sins are forgiven. And as soon as we read that, our, all of our students are saying, whoa, 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 teacher, only God can forgive sins. And like the next line in the story is, the Pharisee says, whoa, 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 only God can forgive sins. And so you just realize that that's the room that we're in. We're in a room full of Pharisees, and we're sharing a story that doesn't make any sense to them. Because yeah, only God can forgive sins. And again, we say those Muslims, they're all out of their minds. But how often do I think the same way as them? That like a Pharisee, I can be good enough. There's enough things I can do. I can, I can score seven out of 10. It's gotta be good enough. It was good enough for me when I was in high school. It's gotta be good enough for me now. And as if that's not enough, he forgives the man's sins without any 
confession, without a discipleship group, without any type of a program that has been put in place, Jesus just says, boom, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals the man, just like that. And for us, I mean, it's hard, again, for us to put ourselves into this story. But where we live, there is such a problem of paralysis, either through polio or through a car accident. There are people that have deformed legs that they scoot themselves along the sidewalks to try to get to cars as they come to stops to try to beg for, for food. And so to talk about this story in our classroom, the students, they don't have to try to imagine what it looks like for a paralyzed person to be put in front of someone because they're all around. I one time even had a student who, was, who had a deformed leg. He, he walked like this. He had a crutch. And uh, as I'm reading this story, I'm just thinking, this is so amazing what Jesus did. And then we move on and Jesus starts talking to this guy named Nicodemus and he starts using words that we have all accepted as normal about being born again. And that doesn't make any sense. And we just say, are you born again? And we use this term born again to put on a bumper sticker. But it is so crazy that Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom. And again, it's something we've heard. We just say, yeah, that makes sense. And our students are just like, teacher, this doesn't make any sense. How can a man be born again? It's exactly what Nicodemus has said. And then we see Jesus allowing women close contact with him, and he's even talking with women, which in, in the context that we live in, that is very inappropriate. We have guys separated in one class. We have my wife teaches the ladies' class. It is so inappropriate for Jesus to be that close to women. And we just think, oh, yeah, you know, equal rights, it's okay, no problem. But could you imagine what it would be like to see your pastor, Pastor Dan, talking with a prostitute? How would you feel seeing him somewhere talking with a prostitute? It doesn't feel so good, does it? <laughs> That's hard to swallow. And we have these stories. That t the students are like, oh, teacher. Eesh. These people that Jesus talked to. And Jesus tells these stories about tax collector and and, and, and the Pharisee, and, and he takes the good guy, should be the Pharisee, and the tax collector is the bad guy, and he switches them around. He makes the good guy the bad guy, and the bad guy the good guy. And we tell this story, and our students are just, their mouths are open, it's, wait, the Pharisee is the bad guy, and the tax collector is the good guy? All he said was, have mercy on me. He didn't, doesn't seem right. And then Jesus makes these claims about who he is. And we've made sure in our stories to put as many of Jesus' famous I am statements as possible because we want Jesus to speak for himself. It's one thing for me to say, hey, you should follow this Jesus guy. He says good stuff. But when Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We've read that a lot. That doesn't make any sense. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Before Abraham was, I am. And they hear that and our students immediately say, whoa, that's what God said to Moses. That's how God identified himself to Moses. I am? How can Jesus say these things? Who does he think he is? And I say, yeah, it's crazy. It is. It's absolutely crazy, unless it's true. Jesus says, whoever believes in me has eternal life but whoever doesn't believe is condemned. 
And this is the verse that we've heard a long time. If you've grown up in this place, maybe from this age or any other place, you have heard, seen posters, John 3.16. We can all recite it. As, we're reading, as I'm reading this story to our students, one of the students raises his hand and says, Teacher, Jesus says that whoever doesn't believe is condemned. Does that mean that we're all condemned? And I was praying, saying, God, I need you to be doing something because this could go south really fast. Before I could even say anything, another student who's actually that same one who asked the question about the Lamb of God, his name is Umar, he says, he turns around and looks at him and says, what do you mean? You don't believe in Jesus? He looks at all the other students and says, we all believe in Jesus, right? And they're all like, yeah. He's like, see, we're going to paradise. We're not condemned. I'm like, oh my goodness, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> How does this happen so quickly? But we got to have a conversation about what is Jesus saying? Just looking at the words, not my explanation, but Jesus says, whoever believes in me. What does it mean to believe in someone? To believe in someone. What does that mean? Because if I'm honest, and maybe if we're honest, we can recite that verse without even thinking about it, but what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is he saying? That word believe, do I just think, okay, uh, yeah, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, he died, he rose again, boom. Is that what it means to believe in someone? It's very different than believing someone. When we say, yeah, what Jesus said is true, we're believing him. But another, and, and I don't say, you know, this is what it means. I say, what are some other ways that you could say, what are some words that you put in there? Trust, we could, whoever trusts in me, what are we trusting, what does he want people to trust him to do? And we walk through this whole story, just this verse, and one, one day we say, Jesus is trusting, Jesus is saying, whoever trusts in him to keep his promise, that trusting in his sacrifice in your place means eternal life. Not trusting in that sacrifice in your place, not trusting that he keeps his word, that he keeps his promise, means you're condemned. And reading stories from this perspective just forces you, forces me, forces us, to really check our definitions, that our words that we use, being in a, in a context that we live in, that we just don't have the definitions for. And we learned this as we were learning language, that you're forced to, to understand what words are in their most basic form. And we have taken on this language called Christianity, and we have not done that. We have not checked our definitions. And so we use words like believe, and born again, and saved. And we just, we, honestly, we just don't know what we're saying. And reading and looking at these stories from somebody else's perspective that has never heard it before, he starts to say, what does it mean? Why did Jesus say, talk about being saved. What, saved how? Saved from what? And so this has been a challenge, it's been a refreshing challenge to me and my wife and our family, and, and I, I'll put it out there uh, to you as well. As you're reading these stories, don't just gloss over them, but really try to think, wow, each sentence, each word is there for a reason. And then this, the story continues, and, and things start to get bad for Jesus. He gets arrested. He gets beaten up. His, his friends desert him. And, and as we got to that story, our students are just starting to freak out a little bit. And one student in particular, he just looked down. And I said, what's going on? And he said, teacher, this is bad news. Jesus is just arrested. His friends all left, and he's being beaten up. What happens next? I said, I don't know, we have to find out. We have like the next story. I think it's gonna get pretty clear. But you realize they just don't know what happens next. And you can walk out in a lot of these houses around us and say, what's the story? 
And he goes, okay, uh, Jesus, he lived, he died, he, you know, this is what people believe. He lived, he died, he rose again. Our students, they don't know what happens next. He's been arrested. What happens next? He's, I mean, if he's a prophet, he's got to get out of it. Nothing bad's going to happen to a prophet, right? And then Jesus is on the cross, and he makes this statement to the criminal. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal doesn't say, you know, confess all of his sins. He doesn't do this, please. He just makes a very basic statement, remember me. And Jesus says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And the students say, whoa, 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 teacher. Jesus cannot say this. No one can know. No one can know who gets in. They, in, in Islam, even Muhammad didn't know if he was going to get into paradise. They say no one can know. Jesus cannot know what is happening for that person when he dies. But Jesus, he still says it. He doesn't care what they think. He says, today you'll be with me. You will be with me in paradise. And we come to the death of Jesus and we have this problem again. Because in their book, Jesus doesn't die. In their book, they have Jesus. They have some of his, well, they, don't, they have teachings of Jesus. They don't necessarily line up with this. They have stories about Jesus. But in their book, God does some kind of a switcheroo. Jesus doesn't wind up on the cross. Somebody else that looks like Jesus winds up on the cross. The last minute, God takes Jesus up to heaven, and there's, you know, a replacement, a stunt double. And so we read this story, and the students have, this is the, the, the straw. They say, teacher, this is very different. In our book, Jesus does not die. And I'll say, okay. And I'll say, and they'll say, but here, it says Jesus died. And I'll say, uh-huh. And they'll say, that is very different. I say, yes, it is. And it just get really quiet. And I used to think that when they're quiet, they were bored or they weren't really paying attention. But now I understand that when they're quiet, then they're really paying attention. And so I'll just ask the question, okay, so why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And again, silence. Everyone's looking at the ground. And finally, somebody will say, because if he doesn't die, then he can't save his people from their sins. He can't remove the sin from his people. And, and he's been talking about how this has to happen to fulfill the scriptures. And I say, yeah, that's correct. And I don't go into a dad sermon. I don't give him some long added explanation. And just, yes, that is the truth. It has been spoken out loud so that we can have the answer to the question of why did Jesus have to die? Why does he have to die on that cross? Because that is how God has said the sins are going to be removed. I'm going to make you my people. After we finish that story, uh, we do watch the Passion of the Christ movie, which isn't, you know, the greatest, you know, movie of all times, but it does paint a picture of what it could have been like, that this was not something you could just escape from, and that Mary was sitting there watching the whole thing happening. And that's a detail, again, that we skip over, um, but it's in the scriptures, and I think God put it in there graciously for the Muslim, because for a mother to watch her son die on the cross... She's not going to go, wait a minute, that's not him. He that's, wait, there's somebody else up there. A mother's going to know that's her son. And they, they pick up on that far, far faster than I could have. And, and that's just a small detail that we, again, read through and say, okay, yep, Mary's there. But she watched the whole thing happen. She saw what happened. Jesus is resurrected. He, he was resurrected to prove that he had the power to do what he said he was going to do. And some of the students are actually happy. Whew, oh, man, finally a good ending. And the other ones just don't know, like, what to think. They're just kind of scratching their heads. We, our, our last story ends at, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and the, the, the disciples are all moving on to other places. 
And then we wrap up our class. We have a lot of exams and, and reports and oral presentations that they have to do in order to pass. We make it very difficult. Yeah. We start with 20 in the Old Testament class, maybe 15, uh, maybe 13 will pass, and we'll get to the very end. We do that because we, want, we, we don't just want to hand out certificates. We want them to earn it, and it forces them to memorize everything that they've learned, and they do. But after they pass, all, after all these exams, I do a one-on-one -on -one interview with the students, and I, and I sit them down just in an office, just me and them, and I ask them, you know, boring questions like, what did you think of the class? What are some of your favorite things, your least favorite things? But then I, I really just have one question that I'm dying to ask, I have been dying to ask from the beginning, and that's, so now that you've studied all these stories, who do you say that Jesus is? You've heard what other people have said, who do you say that Jesus is? And predominantly, most everyone will say, I believe he is a prophet, that he is a good teacher, he's a good man, um, and I'll write that down too with the notes. And, uh, but one student really summed it up, what I knew everybody else was thinking. He was one of our better students in a particular class, and he said, teacher, he looked really troubled, and, and finally he just said it, teacher, even if I have to fail this class, I could never say that Jesus is the Son of God because I'm a Muslim. And if I say that Jesus is the Son of God, it means I am not a Muslim anymore. So even if, teacher, if you have to fail me, I will never say it. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about failing the class. I said, but okay, you know, I'll, I'll write that down and, and just part of my notes. And I, and I knew that's what everybody else was thinking. That's in the back of their minds, that these words that we can put on a bumper sticker and we can say pretty easily, Son of God, that is, those are not words that you can just say, even to pass a test. You could not say that because there is a clear break. If you say Jesus is, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, then that, that is a clear breaking point from what you have always been taught and from what your culture is. However, on average, out of the 13 to 15 students, we will have about two to three that will look at me and say in their own words, teacher, I believe he is the Son of God, that he has come, he's taken away my sin, and now God accepts me. And I sit there and I write down like I could care less, but inside I'm like, God, you are amazing. This is only something you can do. This isn't Danny tells a clever story and tricks people into believing something. This is the Holy Spirit opening eyes, breathing life into dead bodies that were so far away from him, it was impossible to bridge the gap. And the Holy Spirit graciously breathing life into our students. And I talk to them, I tell them there's so much more to study. We have just a summary. We don't actually study out of the Bible in our classroom. We just have summary stories. I say, if you'd like uh, to come to my house, so we can study more. There's so much more that Jesus had to say and what it means that he is the Son of God. And we live just a couple minutes, just a few minutes from our center, and so it's very easy for them to sneak into our house. And because we're English teachers, it's not strange for them to come to visit us because our neighbors know us as English teachers. We don't use that M-word missionary, which if I can put the disclaimer out there, please don't refer to us as missionaries on Facebook or any other social media. Um, but the, uh, the students will come to our house. I, I try to meet with them uh, individually because for them it's a very individual, private thing. I'm the only person they have told this to. And it gets difficult to stay in touch with them because after they graduate from our, our center, they, they can find work. We have students that with a certificate from our center get jobs as English teachers in public schools. Um, and, and the qualification that our, our certificate gives them is that high. They, they can teach English to other Chadians. Um, so it's hard to connect with them afterwards, and, and it's just myself with these guys, and so I can't meet with two to three from every single class. Um, and so we've, we've tried. There's been a couple. There's been a couple stories of um, people that have 
con made that confession and then have followed up. I think if we have one more picture of me, just me, and yeah, okay, so we can look at this one. So this is uh, from the graduation ceremonies of some of our classes and our boys trying not to be bored to death. Um, but uh, some of these students are again from Sudan and from Egypt and they've had the opportunity now to hear um, God's word. Not all of them have, have believed, but the, the seed has been planted in their hearts that they have experienced who God is through Jesus and through his word and we trust that God will bring that, uh, God will do with that what he, what he desires. And then the next Okay, you'll have to forgive the really bad quality, but maybe it's good for like, you know, protective services and those kinds of things. Because you don't need to know who that is other than um, he is one of those students um, who uh, shortly before we left um, had told me in class, teacher, if I'm not here on Friday, it means I'm dead. And I said, well, come on, you can't be dead on Friday. We got a test on Friday, you gotta be here. And uh, so he wanted a, a Bible. Uh, and so I had been putting him off for a while and finally he, he had asked me again, teacher, I, can I get a Bible? I said, okay, well you come to my house after class and I'll see if I can find one for you. And uh, he came, and I don't do that because we have a shortage of Bibles. Please don't mail it, we have, I have a ton of Bibles. But just so that he takes the ownership and initiates this. And he came to our house and I said, so Abdurman, really, you think you're going to die? You, and, and he was serious, he thought he could. There was something going on in the city he was being asked to be a part of. And, and um, I said, well, what, what, what would happen if you die? And he says, oh, teacher, there's, there's no way to know. I mean, I hope maybe, you know, Allah will have mercy and, and I will be in paradise. And, and just that day, I, I said, we, we just studied this, the story of Jesus talking to that criminal today. And, what did, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And how could Jesus say that? And, and he said, teacher, I don't know. And, and we just rehashed the story that we had studied all the way through. And, and he's starting to nod his head. And, and so I finish and, and I said, so if you do die, wh what will happen? He said, oh, teacher, I'll be in paradise because Jesus has taken my sin and so now God accepts me. So it's okay, teacher, I'll be okay. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, beginning like that. And uh, he left and um, we stayed in contact. He would come regularly at, at night after prayers and, and he, I've been in touch with him. Uh, through um, messaging, and, and he's still studying uh, the scriptures and, and wanting uh, to, to know more, and, and he just recently, maybe a month ago, uh, messaged me as a teacher, when are you coming back? It's been too long, and I said, oh, we're coming back soon, um, God willing, and, and he says, teacher, I've been reading, and I need you to come back, because I need to get baptized. Ma Jesus talked about it in Matthew, and, and I need to do that, so you need to come back. And I just praise God that um, that has happened in his own heart. It's not something a foreigner said, you need to be baptized, you need to do it in this way. But he's just reading the scriptures. He says, well, this is something I need to do to be obedient, and I need to do that. And so um, we praise God for what he's doing, not just in, in his heart, but in, in all of the students' heart, and just in enabling us to be able to share God's word in such a platform. Um, we're looking at ways to be more effective as we go back, and one of those ways is to lead a team. Um, AIM, our organization, has a short-term team that they will send to locations for about two years, and we can train them in how to understand the culture, but also how to work in our context, and hopefully be able to have then more hands on deck as we um, work to try to disciple each individual student. And so we're trusting God to provide um, people for that, those posts, those positions, and um, Again, like I said, a Chad is not an easy place to get to, or a lot of people would rather go somewhere else. And uh, we uh, are just trusting that God will have the right people um, join our team, that we can work even more effectively at spreading his gospel. And then it's been just an awesome blessing to be here. Um, 
at Cedar Home, but also just in the states and be able to share some of these stories face-to-face. -face. We, we try to share monthly email updates, but there's not a lot that we can do with that. But uh, it's just been exciting to be able to share, not just to boast about what God has been doing, not to just say, which is awesome in itself, but also to give you, to give everyone the opportunity to just be involved in what God is already doing in Jemena. And there's other places that that can happen, but we're just praising him that there are these ways that you can be involved, even here. You don't have to go and be in 120 degree heat. You can, if you're open to that. But there are ways, there's ways like through prayer. Like we are looking for people to pray with us and to be very strategic in praying at specific times for when our classes are happening. And if, if you love to pray, if that is your heart, we'd love to be able to share emails with you and add you to that little short email that we will send out each week. And it's just amazing what God will do as people pray and ask God to work. We also um, see that you can be a part of what God is doing through something that seems very simple, but through encouraging, encouraging us, encouraging other workers, um, it is incredibly lonely. You can feel very, not you can feel, you feel very isolated um, being where we are. And um, getting emails, um, getting even just small dollar store packages, it doesn't have to be, you know, e extravagant, just reminds us, hey, we're not alone. We have not been, you know, forgotten. And it is, it is very lonely. And it, it, would, it is a great privilege to receive just an email, say, hey, we're praying for you. And we, we'll read that 10 times. We'll just, we just love hearing from that. And, and there's also, just very practically, through supporting, through, we have a team of people that financially sacrifice every month. They give, you know, $10 on up. They give something. And there's people that have said, you know, every Wednesday we eat oatmeal so that we can send you, um, <laughs> we can be a part of your team. And we just praise God for that. That's another way that we're reminded, wow, we have not been forgotten, that God is still working. And we just um, praise him that he is providing through his people and, and continuing to draw people to our team. And, and if you'd like to hear more of all these things, I mean, honestly, I could share stories all day, but I won't, so don't worry about that. But we do send out month monthly email updates. We don't put anything on Facebook. We don't really use Facebook anymore, but um, we contact through email and just sharing what God's been doing in ways that you can be praying with us and, and for us and, and exciting, you know, updates of God working because he is, he is working. And so, again, I want to thank you guys, a Cedar Home. Um, you, as a church, are supporting us in more ways than just financial ways and just being an encouragement to me and to my wife and our kids and um, so the youth uh, <laughs> pooled their resources not too long ago and sent us to, uh, to Great Wolf Lodge. Um, it was just, we just can't thank you guys enough. There are so many ways that this church has just filled us up that um, we can't thank you enough. And it's just been a real privilege to be able to share, maybe longer than I should have shared, but it, I just pray that um, God will be encouraging you uh, to seek him, to read his word, um, to really try to see him from a different lens than maybe what you're comfortable doing, and that he will give you the grace to do that. So I'll, I'm going to pray, and I, I think the um, band will close us in prayer in a song, but let me pray for us. Father God, I just again thank you for your great love your, your great, great love that you have shown us, that you have proven to us by sending your son to die in our place, that whoever believes, whoever trusts in that sacrifice can be in your kingdom. And Lord God, we have so many misunderstandings just based on our culture, based on how we've grown up, our experiences, 
And Father, I just pray for the grace to believe that you will be working in our hearts, that you will be opening our eyes, you'll be giving us fresh ears to hear you, that we can know you, that we can walk as closely as we possibly can to your presence. And we just thank you again and pray all these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.